Hello and welcome to the WPAOG podcast. This episode features an interview with retired Colonel Barry Morton, West Point class of 1966, and retired Lieutenant Colonel Alan Nason, also class of 66. After graduating from the United States Military Academy, Colonel Morton commissioned in the Corps of Engineers, completed airborne and ranger training, and had a succession of overseas assignments in Germany, Vietnam, and Cambodia. He earned his master's degree in civil engineering from Purdue University and attended medical school at Indiana University, graduating with his doctorate of medicine. He trained at Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center, becoming the plastic surgery department chairman and residency program director. Currently, Morton serves on several boards, including the West Point Class of 66 Board of Directors. Lieutenant Colonel Nason also went to Airborne and Ranger School after graduating from West Point. In Vietnam, he served as the American advisor to the 43rd Vietnamese Ranger Battalion in the Mekong Delta of Vietnam. He received a Master of Science degree from Akron University and a Doctor of Education degree from Virginia Tech. In this episode, Morton and Nason talk about their highlights from attending West Point, their experiences serving in the Vietnam War, and how the West Point Class Ring Memorial Program contributes to the continued legacy of the Long Gray Line. Now, please enjoy this interview between Dr. Barry Morton, Alan Nason, and your host, retired Lieutenant Colonel Dave Seary, class of 1994, director of the West Point Center for Oral History and instructor in the Department of History. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to be talking with you today. I'm Dave Seary, West Point class of 94. I'm the director of the West Point Center for Oral History. And today I'm talking with Barry Morton and Al Nason from the West Point class of 66. How are you doing today, gentlemen? Doing fine. The sun's shining here in Virginia for a change. So uh, we're able to get outside. Doing great, Dave. Fabulous. Today we're going to focus on the uh, West Point Class Ring Memorial Program, commonly known as the Ring Melt, and uh, the Class of 66 involvement with the program and your service during the Vietnam War. So let's start by talking about the Class Ring Memorial Program. Tell me a little bit about what it is and what is your class's involvement with this program. I'll start from the back end, and then Barry could talk a lot more about how we got into this thing. The Ring Melt itself is a dedication ceremony where families and graduates can donate their ring so that the gold from the past is mixed with the gold of the future. Basically, they donate the rings. The rings are melted into crucible, and the gold is given to whichever company selected to make the next set of class rings, and the gold from the past uh, then becomes integrated into the gold from the future, perpetuating not only the long gray line, but now I guess you'd call it the long gold line. So Dave, to discuss the class's participation, really have to dial it back at least almost five years, but for sure three. I became a member of the board of directors at our 50th reunion, and I was new to that role. And during the 50th reunion, we actually gave a gift to West Point in the total amount of three and a half million dollars. And um, I had not been part of any of that. I hadn't done anything. I hadn't really done an awful lot to help the class. But it was apparent that there had been some bitter struggles and some divisiveness and some disagreements on the gift. The amount had been selected, the recipient had been selected, and the class balked at some level. I really am not at all privy to the process that led to the decision, but the only way that it went forward at that point was to split the baby. And actually, the baby was not just bisected, it was trisected. And the various warring factions were all pacified by giving a small amount, a smaller amount, to three different considerations. And so sometime about two years after that, we were still conducting business as a class by somebody would just throw a question out on email and the various board of directors member would answer either thoughtfully or in a cryptic manner with two words on a cell phone. I agree, I disagree, good idea, bad idea, things like that. And we were still finding our legs in terms of structure. So an email began to be circulating around where people were opining on whether or not we should consider an additional gift. And here, historically, the AOG has 
sort of helped an awful lot. I mean, they've actually helped a tremendous amount in many, many arenas, the classes and the class services and all the other things they do. And one of the things historically they've always done is uh, you sort of focus on your 50th, you give a larger gift then, and then you move on, you get older, and ultimately you fold leftover monies into the system, and that's all provided for. However, we had funds available. We had nearly $2 million, uh, maybe not quite that amount, and it was growing pretty effectively. And so the question was, should we have another gift at the 60th? And in order to go forward at that point, I actually put together a comprehensive email, and it was the very first document related to the ring mail or the gift or anything else that came out that wasn't just a text message. And so on July 22nd, 2019, I sent about a four-page email to all the members of the board of directors. And I won't read all that, but I will read a concept that had become very clear to me. And just sitting and thinking about it and having had the recent experience in 2018 of having a huge presence at the Vietnam Memorial in D.C., where we honored all of our fallen brothers. And we had at that location at that time over 100 members that were descendants, family members of those 33 kids that we lost in their early 20s. And so that was in my mind. And here's the word branding was the word that was chosen. I never thought it was a good word. But we never found a better one in the ensuing time, and now it's it's only history. Under branding, I wrote that the gift should have several components. It should be consequential to the cadets themselves. It should be competitive on merit. It should be recurring or available on an annual or semi-annual basis, and it should have intent to be awarded in perpetuity. So the concept of giving a gift to the academy slash AOG that would affect cadets and would go on for a long time was firmly established at that very foundational level. Essentially, it should have life. And I really love that and put life in caps. The name should reference the class of 66 and the award should be given in memory of our fallen brothers. And so this is an other concept that's being advanced for the first time. One of our sacred obligations to our brothers is to never forget their service and sacrifice. The notion of a cadet winning our award in 2066, 100 years after our graduation, and receiving it with a presentation that involves remembering our following classmates is a very attractive and satisfying image. And there was many more pages discussing other kinds of things. Once that identity to the gift had been established, that was so clear and we nourished it a little bit. And then, of course, it had to be more than one person that was embracing it. We had to sort of shop it and determine if there was support anywhere and then figure out a way to take that to the class and ultimately garner widespread support. So that became that became some of the things that went on. But what I was really wondering at that time, once identity had been established, was how did we deliver? And so we actually used another set of words that I never liked, but we never changed, and that was delivery vehicle. And so out of delivery vehicle, I had just pulled up and I'd read the entire manual of how monies are obtained by AOG and how they're managed and how they're distributed and what a gift is and what a definition is and what the gift giver's bill of rights is, all these things. So pretty much understood it. And just off the top of our head, we came up with obstacle course, the memorial scholarship endowments in the academy scholars program and history staff rides as potential recipients and ways to deliver this gift for which we'd already found an identity. So that was July of 2019. So how did the ring melt become an important idea to you? I say one of the things that Barry just mentioned, those those candidate gifts that we had discussed would probably go to maybe one or two cadets each time we we issued it. And I think the big difference between what eventually came was that the gift that is finally selected, that Barry will mention in a moment, goes to all of the cadets of a particular class. So a very broad appeal, something that affects everybody. Right. You know, to give an award to the person that does the best on the obstacle course, well, that's one person, one gift. That's not really what we wanted. This was 2019. And I did make some contact with the AOG at that time, but 2020 came pretty quickly. And you may remember that absolutely nothing was going on. So we lost really 
an entire year where everyone was working from home. If they were working, there was not much happening and time went on. The concept languished, but we did shop it through our directors and people were pretty excited about the idea of doing something, memorializing our brothers, but we really hadn't gone to the class. And actually my first contact again with AOG was uh, May 18th of 2021. And I just realized, you know, we lost a whole year, more than a year. We still have plenty of time until 2026. So I didn't feel like it was a huge thing, but wanted to do something that was significant and didn't know exactly how to start. So I just went to the AOG website and found out some phone numbers and everything. And I cold called Kristen Sorensen and she answered the phone. I talked to her for an hour. She was excited. I was excited. And she said, I will get you in touch with somebody immediately. And that was the 18th of May. And on Tuesday, the 1st of June, I made contact with Elena Ivanova, who is a wonderful woman and has become a great friend. And she was our point of contact for the AOG and the Academy in actually helping develop these ideas. We spent a lot of time talking about legacy gift. We want those words, honor our fallen brothers. We want those words. We want the gift to have life. We want it to be in perpetuity. We want to impact cadets. I really like the idea of merit. I'm about merit always in all things and should be repeated annually. Again, we were looking at a number of things and Elena took that ball and then started contacting departments. And the first thing she did was contact history and then DPE. And um, we spoke again later that year and it didn't look like there was any enthusiasm for our ideas at those levels. And so we began to look again and it was in that phone call in August of 2021 that she actually proposed, she said, what about the ring melt? And I said, goodness gracious, I've never even dared to think that that was a possibility. I know about the event. It's a fabulous event. And you are saying that might be possible. I know that the class of 67 sponsors a leaders conference, but I really never dared, dared to think it was possible. And so that was it. That was the nidus of the idea. I took that to our committee of other directors, and we had a, a long meeting and talked about everything. There's extensive notes from that meeting. But here's the thing. All the ideas that we had, history, staff, riots, et cetera, et cetera, everything just attenuated in terms of enthusiasm, except for everybody bought onto the ring mount, like, this is what we want. Is this possible? I don't know, but it sure is what we want. And that that was where we were in the fall of, in the third quarter of 2021. And it was at that time that I actually made a trip to West Point for a football game with one of my classmates. And along on that ride was uh, Lieutenant General uh, Dubia and his wife, John Dubia and Maureen. And they, of course, were wanting to know what's going on with the gift and all this. And I spoke to it and John said, that's unbelievable. That is a great idea. And I really think that General Joe DeFrancisco needs to know about it. And I said, well, John, I'm shopping it through channels and we're pushing in that direction. If you want the authority to take it to your friend and have a private conversation about it just to determine how it might play at that level, I would love that idea. And what we found was that General Dubio was very enthusiastic. General DeFrancisco was very enthusiastic. I was fortunate to be copied in to some of those emails. And he talked to Todd Brown. He talked to Kristen Sorensen and, of course, Kathy Kilner. And what we found at every level was not defensive maneuvers and pushback. It was embracement. And so by Christmas time in early January, there were people at all levels of the AOG that knew that the class of 66 was interested in the ring melt. And we began at that time to have large conversations at multiple levels involving Katha, involving Elena, involving finance within AOG. And we began to discuss specifics because we recognized that, of course, in order for this to happen, we had to bring it in the form of an endowment agreement. That's wonderful. You know, I think part of the beauty of the the uh, ring melt program is that not only does it affect every single graduate who receives a ring, and it started in 2001, but also it ties in all the 
older classes who have donated rings, who have bequeathed rings to West Point because it's their gold that forms part of the ingot that goes into all the new rings. And I think it's just a, a beautiful program. It's an unbelievable confluence of the right stuff. And participants include the faculty, graduates, families, supporters of the academy, cadets themselves, the command structure. In January, the entire command structure was physically present, and we were able to communicate with all of them. It moves you beyond. I mean, I was moist-eyed the entire visit uh, to West Point, and I think part of the provisions are that uh, we will have as many as four uh, members of the class that are able to attend um, each event, and you won't see me or Al again, probably, but we've already chosen, our executive committee has already chosen a pool of five people that will ultimately make up the four that will come in 2024. And we are just so excited. And to sort of bring it to closure, if you want, we did notify the class that we gave plenty of room for anybody to complain. I've never heard one complaint from anybody about any of this. And not only are our class and our classmates excited, our next of kin, the families of the brothers that were lost, were moved to tears. I've gotten multiple emails from widows and children and cousins of those guys that were killed in 67 and 68 and 69 and 70 that feel that their loved one being their image being refreshed and their deeds being refreshed and their service being honored every year is just such a gift to them. We haven't found a downside, and we could not be more happy about the support we've gotten from AOG at every level. The videographer that put uh, our initial video together did an unbelievable job. We spent an entire day at the Vietnam Wall making the video, which obviously was hours and hours, nailed it down to about five-minute video that actually started the ring melt ceremony. And everybody saw that video for five minutes, classmates our classmates talking about some of our, our the guys that were lost during the war. And that really, that really set an emotional stage, I think, for the rest of the afternoon that we were there. It gave recognition, not just our class, but to the fallen brothers that we wanted, wanted to celebrate, as Barry said. It set a solemn tone, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, for the ceremony itself. It wasn't just a bunch of gold being dumped in a crucible. This had meaning to a lot of people both living and not living, as you watched over 60 families drop a ring into that crucible to become the rings of the future. And we were, the four of us that were sitting in the front row, I agree with Barry, it was hard to keep the tears from flowing, particularly several of the folks that don't put the rings in the crucible were given the opportunity to take the microphone and talk about their loved one or, or why they were donating I don't know that I've been as to a much of an emotionally charged event at West Point, even a football game, as sitting there watching this and just kind of kind of feeling what the families felt. And that's why Barry and I, we've decided that uh, our time, we've done it. It's time to share that with four other classmates and let them go up and feel the same emotions. And the classmates and families that get to see it, you know, the videos and, of the ring melt uh, on the computer from home was just I'm without words. I'm without any further words. So the gold that's put into that crucible, that gold has a story. And that gold has been around the world on, you know, fingers of different graduates. And it just creates a legacy, doesn't it? Oh, it does. In fact, one of the interesting stories, there was one family that had two rings because they lost the first one and then had it replaced. And now they had two rings. Now, you mentioned shooting a part of the film that you showed at the ring melt at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Your class had a, uh, a reunion there in 2018, right, where you said over 600 people attended. What was it about that location that uh, is so powerful for you all? Well, I think the obvious answer to that is it memorializes in perpetuity the folks, uh, our class members who were killed in Vietnam. I've often heard the expression, they gave their lives and I hate that expression because our classmates didn't give their lives. Their lives were taken from them at a very young age. Uh, what they did give was a full measure of duty uh, that they had committed to when they put on those bars at West Point and, and got their commissions and went to, you know, we, we didn't go to basic course, when they went to Airborne or Ranger School and, and then got their orders to Vietnam, they were committed soldiers. 
they didn't give their lives. They would have preferred to live and be part of what we're doing today. But they were dedicated and brave, brave young men who fought, who took care of their soldiers and did what they had to do. And those names were on that wall. It was just so obvious that that's where we had to go to commemorate their lives, uh, as short as their lives may have been. Well, let's get a little bit of background information. Both of you graduated from West Point in 1966. Tell me, how did you all end up at West Point? How did that become, you know, the decision that set you on this path of your life? I can tell you that um, I grew up in Indiana in a very small community, the Terre Haute, Indiana, and and, uh, my wife uh, grew up there as well. Very small town. And it was 50s America. There was security everywhere. We had no locks on our doors. Most of our fathers and people that I'd known had had served in the military in World War II. And they had that generation. Brokaw had it cracked. I mean, it was the greatest. They had handed us a secure environment like you've never experienced again. And there was one other element that I think has been ripped away from all of our children at this point, And that is naivete. We were completely naive and innocent and just had a, a fabulous childhood. Couldn't have been better. I had a substantial amount of interest shown in where I might go to school, but I only applied to one school. And I knew early on, even before high school started, where I wanted to go. I had read all of Red Reader's books. In 1956 and 57, there were two years of a video called, a TV show called West Point. I actually, one of my friends, Bob Lowry, a classmate, sent me uh, four DVDs that have every one of those episodes remastered, re-engineered, resounded. And what's amazing is West Point in 1956 and 7 looked identical to the West Point that we encountered in 1962, actually through 66. It really didn't change that much. The big construction didn't start until later. So that was it. That's where I was going. My story kind of echoes Barry. I read all the Red Reader's books. I watched West Point on TV. I'd always been fairly disciplined in the things I did. Uh, In the Boy Scouts, those kinds of activities, uh, sports in high school, get your homework done. It was, you know, I don't want to say I was a straight arrow because I wasn't. But, uh, yeah, discipline. And then reading those books, watching TV, our scout troop was run by folks who were experienced military folks, and I just got inculcated into me, and I said, that's where I want to go. So I, I applied to West Point. I applied to one other college just as a fail-safe in case I didn't get in. And frankly, the first letter I got from my congressman said, I'm sorry, uh, you're qualified, but uh, I've selected somebody else. Wow, that was a blow. And then a few weeks later, I found out that the other fellow from our high school, they found spots on his lungs, and I got a second letter from the congressman saying, show up to West Point on July 2nd. Whoa, Uh, seriously? Yes, you did it, Al. And and so uh, the next four years were kind of a blur, but uh, just getting in was something short of a miracle and fulfilled my dream of going to the academy. Oh, yes. Tell me a little bit about some of the highlights. You said the next four years were a blur. What are some of the highlights that you each remember? I remember encountering excellence everywhere. Uh, and 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 by that I mean in the physical plant, in the just appearance, the beauty of the place, but most specifically in the people that were there, in the leadership, in the academic faculty, in the sports teams. But what I really learned was that every one of my classmates, I am probably the most average person to ever go to that school. I was so impressed with every single person I met because I learned quickly that they may have a different uh, accent or dialect or even use words uh, differently than I do, but uh, you get to know them a little better and they are capable people. They didn't just land here by accident. They have brought some abilities with them and they might be physical, uh, they might be intellectual, they might be from their own self-discipline or other factors, but it was quite extraordinary to be surrounded with so much excellence continuously. I actually found I love that. Yeah, I had no idea what to expect. I was 17 years old when I got there and uh, walked into class and to see Army officers teaching math and chemistry and physics and things. I didn't know Army officers did that. I thought, you know, hey, 
they're supposed to be out fighting. And it was just so impressive to see folks there doing what they were doing, the quality of the education we were getting. You know, we would read about it in Forbes magazine and things like that, about how West Point was really right at the top of the educational ladder and things like that. But until you get there and sit in the classroom and just in, in awe of, of the knowledge that was being shared with you as a cadet from these these officers, uh, we did have a few civilians, but most of it was officers, captains and majors teaching us. It was just something, wow, it was just, it was awesome. I agree with Barry that the other thing was the camaraderie among classmates during the four years that you were there. We were in kind of a unique situation. We, what they called scrambled every once in a while. In other words, we changed companies. We actually changed regiments because the Corps of Cadets doubled in size while we were there. And so you, you got to meet a lot of different folks as you change companies, change regiments and see uh, your other classmates or you meet them in class or you meet them in athletics. And yet at the same time, there was a division. You sometimes, you didn't even know the folks that were living in the lost 50s area of the barracks. It was kind of a dichotomy there of being mixed and mingled and then having people separated. But uh, just being part of a class, of an entity, uh, where we all shared the same, the same joys, the same victories, and the same trials and tribulations uh, as a group. But I don't know, maybe the other academies, but I don't know of any, any place else other than a service academy where that might exist to the extent that it does in our class and, and similar classes. Now, within about uh, a year or two after graduation, both of you ended up serving in Vietnam. Briefly, tell me about your experiences in Vietnam. I was designated to be an advisor. First thing the Army did was send me to about a, uh, I think it was a, about a month-long school where I learned a smattering of Vietnamese and a lot about what I would to be expected when I got to Vietnam. Everything from things like booby traps to you know what the enemy was doing, so on and so forth. Got to Vietnam, and I was immediately assigned to what they called the 4th Vietnamese Ranger Group. It was the group that was in charge of the Ranger Battalions down in the 4th Corps, which is down in the southern part of Vietnam in the Delta. Some people would just say, hey, the rice paddies. Then you just kind of know what everybody's talking about. And so I stayed in that Ranger Group for about a month, and uh, all of a sudden we got a call that one of the Ranger advisors in one of the battalions had kind of gotten crossways with his counterpart, the Vietnamese commander, and had to be exchanged. And the boss turned to me and says, Al, you want a battalion? I said, oh, yeah, that's why I'm here. And so I got to take over the 43rd Vietnamese Ranger Battalion in Binh Long of Vietnam and stayed with my feet in the rice paddies for an entire year with the Rangers. And I have two different perspectives on that assignment. One, from the range, from the advisor perspective, you weren't really an advisor. My counterpart, the battalion commander I'm advising, and that word's in quotes, was a graduate of the Dalat Military Academy, their equivalent to West Point, had been fighting for almost most of his adult life, because let's face it, what, they fought against the French, they fought against the Viet Minh, they fought against the Viet Cong, and so they were in this constant state of war for most of his life. I'm a young lieutenant, fresh out of West Point, uh, and we did not go to officer basic, our class did not. And I'm supposed to advise him on how to fight the war. Well, no, that is not what happened. I was more of a fire support and support coordinator. I was the one who had access to the American helicopter gunships, the American artillery. I actually got naval gunfire at one time and uh, had to direct B-52 strikes. My most powerful weapon, frankly, was my radio. So I could call in whatever uh, assistance that battalion commander needed to include medical evacuation. So that's kind of what I did my first year in Vietnam. Second year, I was a battalion uh, supply officer in the 173rd Airborne Brigade. That was in the late, se in the 70s. I was a uh, aide-de-camp to uh, John Paul Van, who was the senior advisor of two corps. And that was basically my two years in Vietnam. I was also an advisor, which was part of MACV. Contemporary Americans may not understand the degree to which we were there, but uh, let me just use a number. There was at the high water mark, which is when Al and I were both there in Vietnam, there were over 500,000 uh, soldiers uh, and sailors and airmen in country are assigned to theater somewhere on ships offshore, somewhere in airplanes in Guam. 
but half a million people. And I think the exact number is around 543, something like that is quoted repeatedly. So it was a significant amount of presence uh, by the U.S. And that's just military. If you figure that there were multiple contractors and civilian agencies and everything under the sun, I believe that at that point, probably every nickel of the South Vietnamese budget was being uh, subsidized by the payrolls of, of their military, the payrolls of their civilian civil servants, and also the payrolls of their scholastic system were all being subsidized by the United States. So it was a comprehensive investment of treasure and a substantial one of human power as well. I was an advisor to a Vietnamese engineer battalion. Uh, I was an engineer officer. I'd been in a combat engineer battalion in Germany prior to that and had had duties in that battalion that included lieutenant or uh, platoon leader for about two weeks until my uh, company commander missed um, an alert. And then I became the company commander that same morning. And I had that job for a while and then was the S3 and also the battalion executive officer uh, in that relatively short 16-month period before uh, leaving Germany. So I knew what a battalion did and how they did it. And the Vietnamese ones had similar materials and almost identical structure. And we were very effective at doing the jobs that we were given, which is about all you can ask and about all you can understand when you're a, a company, uh, a junior officer, a company grade officer, uh, you, you do the jobs that you're given. I, I found myself really curious as to what was going on in the world and in Vietnam in particular. And, and I actually read every book that I could find in any of the libraries I could find uh, about Vietnam and its history. And so Bernard Fall, Jules Roy, uh, all of those, uh, I, I went back to the very beginning and, and really began to understand. And then you can look a little deeper. You can, look, you can realize that if you are going to purchase something in Saigon, that, that there are three prices. There's the price that uh, you pay if you're a native Vietnamese. There's a price you pay if you are um, native French or historical French. And then there's a price you pay if you're an American. It was all those dichotomies that were so interesting to me. And of course, it was often confusing as to what we're exactly trying to accomplish and what our commitment was when you got up to a, a strategic theater and national level. It was very confusing. And simply put, I think at, at some level, there was an effort to try to avoid being the person that lost the war, that kind of thing, which if you get back down to the company with that message, that's pretty disappointing because the, the human loss is likely to be suffered at that level. So there's a fair amount of asymmetry in what's going on there, to my mind. I had an additional experience that was um, several years later. At that point, I'd been to graduate school. I would, had gotten a professional engineering license, had supervised many large construction projects for the Corps of Engineers, both uh, vertical construction, horizontal construction, and flood control activities all over the U.S., actually. And so it was a lot more experience, but this time I was sent to Cambodia. And uh, they said, don't bother to bring your uniform. I wore what I have on right now to work at the um, embassy. And uh, we were involved in a, in a number of things. It was a totally different kind of experience. We clearly were very exposed, very exposed, and would uh, periodically take fire at the embassy from 105s that were our own tubes that we had given to the law and the whole, our friendly troops who had abandoned them. And now they were being operated by the Khmer Rouge and we were being shot at. And so, again, I, I really began to have some questions about what I was doing and why and, and why I was there um, and, and what our goals were. And we practiced a lot of things. One of the things we always practiced was extraction under emergency set of circumstances. And ultimately, that, in fact, did happen and did come to pass. And I'll only say that one thing that we never considered in all of our scenarios as we rehearsed fighting our way to the soccer field and setting up our perimeter and then being extracted by uh, naval helicopters that came in from the Gulf, the one thing we never considered ever, never entered our mind ever, was that nobody would come for us. And so Benghazi was in 2012. And... Um, you may imagine the conclusions I draw from that. So similar numbers, similar kinds of circumstances, similar lack of stability. 
that was my experience then. And this 50th anniversary, one thing that's kind of interesting is I was there in 1974. So it was after there was nobody there. Yeah, Barry mentioned the dichotomy of different perspectives. We went over for a year and we knew we were going over for a year. And with any luck at all, short of being killed or or severely wounded, you're coming back in a year. I lived in a compound with the Vietnamese for a year. And to them, it was like going to work in the morning. If we got the word that we were going out on a combat operation, these troops, uh, the Vietnamese Rangers would line up in the compound. Their wives would come out of their hooch wherever they lived right there in the compound put a bag of rice or whatever else they were going to eat in their knapsack and their backpack, give them a kiss goodbye. And it was to them, it was like going to work in the morning. And they, like I say, they've been doing it for, for decades and we were there for a year. So there were kind of two different perspectives on, on this thing we called a war. Right. And the 50th anniversary that you, you mentioned was it's been 50 years since the last American troops were withdrawn from Vietnam. And so as you look back on that, how has your service in Vietnam shaped the rest of your life? Well, it gave me an enhanced, not that I didn't have respect for the soldier beforehand. Obviously, that's why I went to West Point. But it obviously enhanced my respect for the soldier because it's a deadly business. And you saw people get killed. You saw people fighting for things they believed in. And that's kind of the, you know, that's what you do when you sign up for a soldier. And I, and I think you increase and enhance your respect for the military, all military you know, entities, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, whatever, that everybody is putting their lives in danger to a degree to do their job because of something they deeply believe in. I think I would respond, David, that I felt like I got pretty grown up at age uh, 23 or 24. And then that was that position was solidified again. And I felt that um, I would look at things pretty critically and then try to be a little bit analytical about them and realize that almost in any case, information that you're being given might take a little bit of individual scrutiny on your part to determine and perhaps get information from another source or ask a different question. I found that uh, things were never really quite as simple as you might have thought that they were. Because the point that Al makes is an excellent one. Our goal was typically to survive the assignment. And that was probably the the top goal. And to do so in an honorable manner, of course, uh, with honorable service. And when, when things begin to happen, you do things almost reflexively and automatically because the motto is so drilled into you that, that you really aren't thinking. You're reacting in ways that you're you're pretty much taught to do. There were an awful lot of people, if it's the merchant that has a little cafe or if it's the individual soldier that has a family, that their goal was, uh, I'm not sure that in every case they were incredibly concerned about who came out, who prevailed. I think they mostly wanted to survive that situation as well. And for the poor person whose lot it is to stand there in the sun, leaning over and planting rice with 18 inches of water up on your ankles and legs, that's not a very good lot anyway. They just hope to maintain that and not have their pigs slaughtered and their sons pressed into service. So there was an awful lot going on. And I and I became pretty disappointed, I think, in the conduct of policy uh, and the communication of policy by our own country. Every political party and most leadership levels. And actually, as you know, uh, decided that I was going to make a trajectory change to my life and take a little more control over it. And after that second tour, and then Saigon fell in April of 1975, I was a field grade officer with two kids, two dogs, two cars, uh, and a promising career. And uh, I decided to leave the army and attend medical school because I thought I just, I'm just going to change direction of my life. Yes, sir. So let's talk a little bit about the legacy of the academy and what West Point has meant in your lives. What lessons did you learn at West Point that have helped you throughout your life? The trite saying that was impressed upon us at the beginning was cooperate and graduate. And I think the bond of cooperating was tremendous. Yeah, we were cloistered. If you were over in New South Barracks, 
you didn't even see the folks over in central area and heaven forbid you ever wandered into north area because you'd never come back alive but i think the bond of cooperation in everything we do and that went on afterwards there was nothing as I'll use the word refreshing because I can't think of another word, particularly like we just talked about Vietnam, to see a classmate in Vietnam. Hey, a friend, somebody I can trust, somebody I know. I went to school with you. Thank you for being here, putting your arm around me. When I got there for my second tour, we met in Saigon, went over and had had a drink together because I met four other classmates in the same boat right there, just gotten there off the airplane. So I think the, uh, the cooperate and graduate thing went through my entire life and still does. Many, many important lessons um, that were important then and are important today, possibly. And I don't know how to how to sum it up in any real effective way, but but I think I should say a couple of things. One would be that you learn and you learn that you can do more than you think you can. And you actually get to the point that take anything, any example you want. And uh, whether you think you can do it or you're absolutely certain you can't, you're probably right either way. Because your own emotional makeup, you conclude as to the level of effort, uh, the degree of pursuit, the manner of persistence, and the approach that you take to anything that you want to accomplish. And if you really believe in it, then um, you may find a pathway. The legacy gift of the class of 66, I couldn't think of a better example. When that was just a nidus, when that was just a thought bubble that nobody else knew about yet. It didn't seem like it was very likely that it would happen, but lots of people pitching in, everybody with ideas, all kinds of support from every level of the class, the academy, AOG, on and on. And now at fruition, we actually have something that has permanence. And I'll tell you what, when I saw that flag, the class of 66 flag, and it was folded in such a way that was genius, uh, I had nothing to do with that. But you could see the 66s, so you knew it was a class flag, and you could see the two sixes. That was really a beautiful way of doing it, and I hope it's done that way in the future. I was sitting there, sitting um, next to Al and John and Bob, and it's been a while since I was absolutely sure that I was as happy as I was. I mean, that was an amazing experience, and, and we hope to be able to have as many classmates as possible share that. And we know that once we no longer can attend or, or we're not here anymore, that that flag is going to still be there. And our young our young brothers, Howie Pontuck, the captain of the gym team, he was my roommate at Camp Buckner. We had nothing in common except that we were both cadets. And uh, we became incredible friends. He did not make it back. And so things like that, the notion that these kids are going to forever be honored and their names are going to be refreshed and be on the lips of cadets, faculty, families, attendees, ring donors, and guests is an incredibly satisfying thing. Yeah, the word crucible is probably overused, but it's a unique experience of 2,400 you know, cadets, say 1,200 classmates going through the same thing for four years. Uh, a shared experience that no matter what you do afterwards. And yes, we had classmates whose motto was Jersey Shore out in four. My roommate went single core, Jersey Shore, got out in four years, but still a classmate forever. So I think that West Point becomes a crucible where you all, similar to the gold of the rings, you all kind of get melted down and rebuilt in a sense. Now you come in with values and those values are strong and you come in with your brains operational and your brain gets enhanced, I'm sure, uh, while you're there. But you still also get, in a sense, you get melted down and rebuilt in a particular mold with your own personality showing through here and there. Uh, and you all have the same, share the same trials and tribulations. You went through clean chemistry together and you survived. You lived through it. You know, it wasn't going to kill you, although you thought it would when you're doing it. Uh, And so you come out with, I think, similar values. Some may be stronger to some folks than others, and certain values may have different weight to different people. But I think as a whole, we came out not remolded, but enhanced, maybe. We came out enhanced for the opportunity and the experience that we all went through. When I graduated, I was was actually ready to leave. And so uh, 10, 20, 30, and 40, I guess... I only came back every 10 years. I was never a, um, 
I was never an instructor up there. I, you know, changed careers and so was pretty busy with some other things. Uh, it was actually at Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center for 15 straight years. So it was two different kinds of careers. I had nine years with the engineers where we moved all the time. And uh, it was at Fitzsimmons where it never moved. If it was still open and I was still young enough that I could probably have stayed there for as long as I wanted. But that was very different. But the constant for me is, again, the demanding excellence of yourself and expecting it from others. And having that motto just tamp down your gullet so that you begin, you live it. And I think most of us right now, I find that my best friends, I've had emails from classmates just in the time that we're doing this. Uh, My best friends are probably still my classmates. And I found that that circle has probably come back with greater and greater time. It's a more focused reality that we are. We were forged in the same uh, cauldron uh, a long time ago, and we had the exact same experiences. And in those days, we had the same academic experience. We all took the same subjects. So I think it's impacted the way I live my life, uh, who my friends are, uh, what my values are. It has certainly driven into me the importance of education. And education, there isn't a day goes by that don't have a plan to learn something. I've been fortunate enough to be a class officer for probably the last 20 to 25 years as the secretary a couple of times and then a vice president, now the president and reunion chair for four reunions and so forth. And that that bond of working with different classmates, I've known more classmates since graduation than I knew at West Point. And that's because of the activities, because of our bond that we share, the different uh, we do many reunions scattered around the country, so you get to meet different people from different geographical areas. I think I've known now more, if not as many, probably more classmates than I knew at West Point because of the fact that we were separated by company regiment and relatively cloistered geographically there. I think everything you said is is true. And and as I think about my classmates, you know, I feel like I, I love my classmates. I wouldn't trade them for anything, you know? There's some of the most important people in my life that aren't my direct family. Well, I guess the final question then for you is the last word on how your class legacy for 66, the ring melt program, how that ties the long gray line to the younger graduates. Well, I think, you know, as Barry said at the very beginning, we, we put together several, uh, a video, our participation in the ceremony. We look forward to actually a longer video that uh, hopefully we'll, go, we'll get to see one of these days that, that commemorates a little more deeply the uh, the lives of the uh, classmates that, that died in, in Vietnam and the one classmate we, we lost in Korea. And I think each year the cadets who hopefully, and I think Barry made the suggestion that more cadets ought to be allowed to go to the ring melt ceremony or even maybe even just be forced to watch it in the auditorium or something uh, just to see the solemnity of what we're actually celebrating. Uh, I, I think that that will have a great impact on them just to be proud of what our class did to make all of that happen is just is just very gratifying to to those of us who do it. And as Barry mentioned, at least four, you know, four of our classmates will get to participate as long as we have classmates that are upright and on the green side of the grass, they'll be able to do it. I think this ring belt, just being involved in it, those that were, you almost wish that more people could have been involved. They can feel in their in their gut and in their heart what we went through to make this happen and then participate at once this past January. I think that will will serve to solidify uh, a lot of classes, hopefully, in the future. I think that was great. I really do. I And one thing I w- will always hasten in conversations with cadets, because I fully, I fully get this, that the ring mount is not a class of 66 event, it is a class of 66 sponsored event. The ring mount is an AOG event. They own it. It's their event, and they will make decisions about how that event is 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 managed. Now, our endowment agreement, of course, serves to influence those decisions substantially because there are a number of things that we've agreed to, and that won't change. But I think what will change is the event itself over time, and I'm sure it will morph. Kathy did an incredible job of building a tradition and Debbie in her first iteration was very impressive. And so I couldn't be 
I couldn't be happier. Todd Brown is is right there with it. And everybody else that I've had the pleasure of meeting in AOG is on board as well. And so uh, one of the things we love about the event is that it appears to me to have great durability. Well, durability of that event also grants us what we're looking for, which is continuity and in perpetuity uh, recollection of our fallen. And so, you know, as I, as I survey my own, my own life and life's experiences, all I can think of is it's an embarrassment of riches, actually. It has been, um, everything is far in excess of any, anything that my wife and I could have thought about or talked about when we were in high school in a little bitty town in Indiana. And so I believe much of that has been certainly influenced by my fortunate choice of an educational academy and, and also career. I won't say there was no individual contribution because I think probably fairly substantial one as well. But but I credit the academy with really preparing me to make life decisions in an effective way and to be an effective uh, person and citizen. That's a pretty satisfying thing. So I could go on, but I don't think I need to. I believe that's it. I think it's an incredible school. I will add one thing, and that is there is a propensity by people who had a difficult time in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, maybe 80s, to somehow feel that it's not adequately rigorous at this point. I would actually posit the other way. I think it's harder. Uh, I'm not sure if I was finishing high school today that I'd be able to get an appointment. And the cadets that I've met are very impressive. The faculty that I've met is very skilled and very knowledgeable. And the leadership is first class as well. And that's right across the board. And it's a good thing because when I look at the world, when we deal with what we're looking at today, first of all, we have an inverted yield curve with respect to our T-bills. We have a situation where world leadership in terms of our two largest adversaries are meeting together with each other in Moscow. There's the possibility that uh, the dollar will be moved off of the reserve currency that's used as petro activity uh, worldwide, we're looking at major, major issues. And I don't see any less threats to the United States today than there were when we went and we thought it was going to be European warfare through the Folding Gap. And it turned out to be counterinsurgency warfare in a jungle. And so it changed that quickly in a period of years, but the threats are still there and they're still substantial. And so my final point is, we need our graduates. We need the work product of this academy more today than possibly ever. I agree. I've heard it say that West Point isn't what it used to be, but frankly, it never has been. It evolves. It gets better. It adapts. If it didn't adapt, there are plenty of folks out there, some of them in high places, that would say, we don't need it. ROTC can do it. Uh, that's not true. That'll never be true uh, because West Point adapts and moves on. Gentlemen, it has been a joy talking with you today and a pleasure hearing about your experiences and hearing about what your class is up to. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Thank you, sir. Well, it's been our pleasure. Thank you. This has been a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and join us each week for a new episode. Thank you for listening.